Hi, everybody. Hi there. We're here. I did an hour ago. I didn't know if we would be, because about one thirty, uh, an hour and a half ago, one thirty, I came and I, I, I wanted to start it all up just to double check my everything looks right, and nothing did look right. Everything was oh, and the system I used to like do the streaming, yeah. it, it, it was not right on all kinds of levels. But I got it right. So now we're here. Everything looks perfect. I checked the internet, our internet connection, running great, um, even in this hot weather. So, wow. So hopefully. I think we should be good. Yeah. We're turning to Mark today. We're, we're in Chapter 9. Yeah. Should so, be good. anyway, what's new with you, Patty? Um, everything's good. I, I went out for lunch with a friend. Yes. I remember reading this many years ago. Maybe you guys could let me know your input on this. That when it's really hot out, you should eat like hot spicy foods. That somehow that that helps. I want to tell you today it did not work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, really. I mean, how many places get as hot as it gets here? I not made a lot. Sure. I, I drank a lot. I was drinking Diet Coke. But I had a lot of chips with hot sauce, and it still felt extremely hot when I walked outside. <laughs> really hot. Yeah. So. Yeah, it anyway. is. We're in a real, real hot spell here we right really now. Are. So. We really are. We kind of seem to go through these things. We do. Yeah. We do. But it is Texas. It is Texas, you know? and it is the end of June. Yeah. You know, I, I, you and I both moved here after the infamous summer of 1980, and there are probably people online already who were here during the infamous summer of 1980 that they keep talking about on the weather all the time. You look at all the record highs in the yeah. summertime. They're all 1980. That must have been murder. It must have been. I don't want to go through that. It really must have so been. So anyway, well, we're glad y'all are here. Um, you know. I, you know, one thing I do what? remember, when I moved here in um, 1985, and um, I just remember, for me, yeah, I was... I was like in my mid-twenties and it was, for me, I had never felt, I came from Atlanta, so I yes. had been in a hot climate. Prior to that, I had come from Florida for a few years. I had never been in a place where it felt like you walked outside and a gigantic blow dryer was on you. And that's what it felt like. It was always very windy that summer. It was hot as the Dickens, but the wind, I had never experienced anything like that. <laughs> When I went into the Air Force, um, my wife and I and, and the kids drove down from Ohio through Flagstaff, Arizona to Phoenix. So we started the day in Flagstaff, made the drive to Phoenix, in the car the whole time. So I pulled into this gas station in downtown Phoenix, and I opened the door, and I thought my engine was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 116 degrees that wow. day. Wow. You know, it was, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yep. we used to, you know, I was in the, uh, I was a pilot out in Phoenix in the summertime and gosh, it would get to 130 degrees or more on the concrete aprons around, around us. And, you know, we're just so hot in the cockpits. Just, we used to have, we used to eat salt tablets. See, they had salt tablet dispensers on the walls in the flight rooms and stuff because you were just supposed to eat them. It was a way for you to try to hang on to water and, survive the heat better better not to live there i say but it's lovely it really is you know quick question yes. did those salt tablets taste like salt tablets or were they coated you didn't eat them you just swallowed them 
Okay. They were okay. Great. I mean, you know, they just kept reminding you to, you know, do some soft tablets now and then. So, yeah. Well, look at that Nancy foot. I lived in Fort Worth in that summer and didn't seem this hot. No, yeah. I don't know. But it, just, it yeah, must it's be the humidity, right too. It's the combination, I guess, too. I that... think in the past couple of weeks that humidity has been shockingly high. Yeah. Which has made the temperature just seem so unbearable. Yes. yes. But it's all unbearable to me. You'll be wearing a sweater in two weeks. That's right, because we're going on vacation. <laughs> and when we go on vacation in the summertime, which direction do we head, Patty? Somewhere cold. Oh, we, we head north. <laughs> we head north. We do. We go somewhere. We do. So, so yeah. anyway, I guess that was enough. Um, Banter? What do we call Bantering? Banter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Probably right. time to move on, because it is... 3.07. Okay. Oh my well, gosh. Like, wow. We, well, we didn't Thank start to like... Thank you for those of you who stayed with us. <laughs> we didn't start to like 3.02 or 3.03. Oh, okay. okay. we, we got a late start today. Okay. Let's pray. Why did we get a late start today, Patty? Because it took me a minute to get hey, around here. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful that you have called us back here, that we are have this opportunity to gather online and to study your word and to hear Jesus in these um in this gospel of mark and we pray that um in these writings from you know nearly two thousand years ago that we will hear that that will hear the truth the truth all this we pray in jesus's name amen amen okay i'm not sure what you're talking about Lois. i don't know not me okay i mean i was right there yeah saying it just took me too long to come around the desk <laughs> not me no ma'am <laughs> good answer good answer yeah okay so all right everybody so uh <laughs> gary brooks wants to know where i got my shirt well this is the in this is my balloon shirt had it for a while um but it came from uh probably steinmark you were probably with me when I bought it, right, Patty? You might have bought it for me. I don't probably know. I've had did. it a while. Yes. Um, Gosh, do I miss Steinmart? I was a big Steinmart shopper, and I know Gary and was too. Gary and Jen, because a few times we ran into each other in a Steinmart. In fact, I'm surprised Gary doesn't have this very shirt. Yes, me too. Okay, so, so here, so yeah. Anyway, I don't Here's, know if you saw that. Carl Reeves <laughs> said that. When Carl and Diana, they were stationed in El Centro, California for a year, five stories below sea level on the flight line, 130 degrees. Yeah. Wow. That's what makes the Dead Sea so unbearable because yes. it's 1,300 feet. I don't know how many stories that is, but that's about 1,300 feet below sea level, and it's just... Brutal. Brutal. Okay. So we are at Mark 9, verse 14. That's where we're going to start. We just finished the story of the Transfiguration last week. That's where it ended, um, where Jesus takes um, uh, Peter and James and John, and they go up the mountainside, and Jesus is transfigured, changed before their eyes. His, I guess you could say his glory is revealed. Um, he's there with Moses and Elijah. And, you know, it's... It, it's a story which glorifies Jesus, but it, it the disciples don't don't really come out too well, whether you're looking at the story in Mark or in Matthew or elsewhere. And now they come down the, the, the mountain, and so the disciples 
the larger group of the disciples, the ones who couldn't go up the mountain, who don't go up the mountain with Jesus, well, they don't come out well either. So let's look at this next story, which is obviously important because of the length of the story. You know, I think it's, it's pretty simple to see that the more time the writer of the gospel wants to spend on a particular story, that it is very significant, and this is the, this is kind of a long one, and I I think we'll see, I think we'll see we'll see why. So so this is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. That's who the they is at the beginning of verse fourteen. When they came down the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them, or the Pharisees, or the scribes, arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. Because by now, he's he's kind of basically a rock star, right? And the crowds are huge, and they follow him. He is seen as this miracle doer, somebody who can exercise um, demons and... And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Okay, because look at back verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they say a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. So there's, there's, kind, of a, there's kind of a confrontation going on. And then Jesus shows up and Jesus wants to know, well, what, what's, all, what's all this about? So a man in the crowd answered Jesus, he says, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. Which, you know, in our world, we, those are, that's the exact description of uh, epileptic seizure, right? He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not do it. So what's happened while Jesus and Peter and James and John are up on the mountainside? Well, this man shows up. He wants, he's looking for Jesus. He has brought his um, spirit-possessed son, who suffers, is obviously suffering terribly, um, for Jesus to heal him, for Jesus to get rid of the spirit, spirit or demon, and get and bring bring health and healing to his son. And when Jesus is there, well, he has he asks the disciples to do it, and they can't do it. They literally can't do it. Even though, if we go back early in the gospel, you remember when Jesus sent them out, sort of two by two, and they could do it. But now things have passed and time has passed and they can't, they can't do it. They can't do it. So here is Jesus' reply. You unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. It is a an unbelieving generation, that that phrase um, for the Jews would mean something like this, a faithless people. 
people who don't have their faith truly in in God. Um, and for me, this is this is me, and I, I've read you know a lot about this this story. I I think Jesus is frustrated. Being frustrated is not sinful. Being frustrated sometimes reflects reality. And he is frustrated with his disciples. I think they are his focus. That's who I think that's who the YOU is. Um, not the crowd. I mean, what has the crowd done? But it's the disciples who who once were exercising demons under Jesus' authority, but now they can't. And I think he is frustrated with them. I sort of get that. It, it, it's, not, it's not cruel or, you know, um, sinful to, to, be, to be frustrated with someone who you feel like should, who, who should be getting further. And is it, you see it in Paul, you know, in Paul's letters, I mean, he writes to these Christians and he says, oh, you, you're still like babies. I have to give you milk. I want to give you real meat, but I have to give you milk. You're like little boats being blown around. And you can hear Paul's frustration. In Galatians, his frustration is so marked that he actually picks up the pen and he says, I'm writing this myself now at the end of the letter, right? And um, at the Galatians, when it begins, there's no nice, neat, little flowery language at the beginning. He just sort of plunges right in. He can't believe what they've done, what they are doing. Um, and I don't think that's, there's, that is how it should be. I am sure God gets frustrated with us. Sure, it's it's not a, it's not a bad emotion unless it's misdirected, right? Yes. You get you you get frustrated with your with your three year old because they're not acting like they're ten or fifteen or something. Well, that's that that's not good. But in this case, you know, it's 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 deserved or Jesus wouldn't have said it. Okay? So, verse 20, so they brought him, they brought the boy. Now, when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled around foaming at the mouth. Just picture, I don't know if, you are, if you've ever seen an epileptic seizure. First one I can remember seeing was in college. It was in a modern German history class. And this girl, a couple desks behind me, a row over, just, she went flying backwards. The chair went back. She went back. She was on the floor. I had never seen anything like it, but fortunately some people in the class had, and they knew they knew the proper thing to do, how to help her, with, particularly with thought she doesn't bite her tongue. But it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty scary thing if you haven't seen it before. It's scary. Actually, it's scary even if you have seen yes. it before because the person's completely out of control. And as I mentioned yesterday in class, my nephew had a terrible seizure, epileptic seizure, on Thursday. And he has been in the hospital in New York ever since. Um, really, did a couple fractures on his skull. And it, it, it can be very violent. Very violent. And kind of come out of nowhere. 
And so that's happening right there in front of Jesus and the crowds and the disciples. And so Jesus asked the boy's father a, a really natural question, I think this is. How long has he been like this? Well, the father says from childhood, it, the spirit, right? Because that's how they understand all this. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes, for one who has faith. That believe word there is that root underneath word, underneath in the Greek. It's that word pistis or the verb form of it. Okay? One who faiths. Faiths. Faiths, yes. yes. Everything is possible for one who believes, one who has faith, deep faith, abiding faith, who trusts Jesus utterly. That's what Jesus is talking about. Um, and, of course, the if you can, I, I think, is a, a mild rebuke. Remember, there are two themes in this that we're trying to track as we go along. One theme is the opposition to Jesus. The other theme is the revelation of his identity. And if you can, well, of course he can, right? Now, you may say, well, but, but the dad hasn't been there for everything. True, 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 true. You know, half of me wonders if the if you can that Jesus says to the fathers actually directed to the disciples. Who it's actually directed to the disciples. And if the next part is actually directed to the disciples, one of those things where he might be saying, though he's standing at the Father, and he's saying the words in response to what the Father's saying, but his eyes are actually focused on his 12 disciples. I kind of think it might be like that. And then the boy's father immediately exclaims, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Or as it's sometimes rendered in fewer English words, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. When you spend more and more time with the Bible and you're connecting more and more dots, you will inevitably have certain certain favorite places, certain favorite stories, certain favorite moments that are just filled with truth and um, emotion. And this is one of those. The Father says, I believe. I trust you, Jesus. Help my unbelief. Help my distrust. And boy, I think in that moment, he's, I really think he speaks for every Christian. Surely we, I mean, surely we all have times when, when doubts creep in. Oftentimes of, of great personal trauma, of death and illness and things we can't understand and, and they can kind of shake us. Um, and so our response can only be like the Father's. I believe, I, I trust you, Jesus. Help my, 
help my distrust, help my unbelief, help me get get deeper and further in trusting you completely. I mean, that would be a good prayer. I guess I kind of just have prayed it close since I closed my eyes. <laughs> so I so the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. Wow. Um people who will see this kind there are Christians who will tend to see these things as very, you know, black and white. Here's the line. Which light side of the line are you on? I, I I get that because like in John's Gospel, it's light and darkness, and you're in the darkness till you get to the light. I get that, but in our experience of this, it just rings so true to me. I believe, help my unbelief. How much is he speaking for the disciples? They've seen far more than the, I mean, than the Father has. They've seen the storm quieted they seen Jesus walk on water they should at this point have an astoundingly ever deeper knowledge of the truth about Jesus but they don't seem to so Jesus's frustration comes out and it's like the father rescues the moment I believe Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, right? They're all they're like everybody wants to see. Everybody wants to see. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you. In the Greek, those are emphatic words. Sort of like in the Exorcist when the words are um, uh, the power of Christ compels you. This is a, these are command words from Jesus to this spirit, this evil spirit who has taken health from this boy. Um, and with the other, like the other exorcisms, it demonstrates what? His authority, Jesus' authority in this. The, he is the ultimate authority in this. You and I know, right? The disciples aren't catching on very fast, but you and I know the truth. That when you are encountering Jesus, you are encountering God. There is no other authority. And again, that the Spirit recognized who Jesus was. See, there we go. Pat, very good point, Patty. You know, it's it's... The Spirit recognizes who Jesus is. We ran into this really early in, in, it's one of the first and very notable pieces in Mark is that the demons know who Jesus is. But they still work against God's purposes. They still work against God's purposes. Which should put an end to those who would say, well, you know, once everybody knows the truth, they're all just going to love on Jesus and God. And that, that doesn't seem to be true. It isn't true for these um, spiritual creatures uh, like the angels, but angels who have chosen against God, these spirits and demons and the rest, they know what the truth is. They haven't chosen for God. They still work against God's purposes. Satan doesn't 
Satan knows what the truth is. He still works against God's purposes. Um, so, I command you, Jesus says, come out of him and never enter him again. So, what does the spirit have to do? The spirit shrieked. He convulsed the boy violently and he came out. He has no choice in this. Jesus' authority is so immense in this that the demon has no choice. The spirit, notice he's not called a demon in this story. The spirit has no choice in this. And he comes out, of course he does, and then he disappears from the story. The boy looks so much like a corpse that many said, oh, he's dead. He's dead. But Jesus took him, took the boy by the hand, and lifted him to his feet, and the boy stood up. The boy wasn't dead. This isn't a resuscitation moment. Um, he just appeared to be dead. He's just lifeless, lying there, passed out from everything they had been through. And now Jesus goes over. And you know with deep compassion and kindness, takes the boy's hand, lifts him up, gets him on his feet, and the boy stood there. It's one of those scenes look, that's really, I think, well, well written. Um, I can, I can, I can see it playing out in my mind's eye, and it's very, it's very, it's very touching. Jesus and the Father and the Boy, not so touching for the disciples, I don't think. Um, after Jesus had gone indoors. His disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer, which is a verse that has presented a challenge to everybody who reads Mark's gospel. Um, and there are a lot of different opinions about it. I think it is tied to the truth of Jesus' ultimate identity, that he is God. That the reason the disciples can't do it, can't perform, couldn't perform the exorcism now, whereas they could do that earlier, is that as time has gone on, they have come to see this power to do exorcism as exactly that. Some power, something like electricity, something like magic. Separating it from the person of Jesus. But it's all about Jesus. Paul says pray continuously. Well, what does he mean? Because nobody's going to spend every hour of their day, every moment of their day on their knees you can't do that in function in life. That isn't what Paul means. What Paul means is to remain in a close communion with God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Abide with Jesus as he abides in you. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what John, Jesus is talking about in John's gospel. That's the essence of prayer. I mean, prayer is this, is this abiding. 
And I think what Jesus is saying to them, this kind can only come out when you remain fully and completely abiding in me. And when you try to go off and do this, because now you think you've been handed over some satchel of, you know, fairy dust or magic power or something else, that you, in your mind and heart, begin to separate from the person of Jesus, then it, it's, of course you can't, because it isn't fairy dust or magic powder or anything like that. It's just the power of Christ that 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 they were in within the ah, what like what like a maybe like they were all within like a little sphere <laughs> or something, and the disciples have been stepping out of it. So now they can't do what they could do earlier. Um, so, but if you read commentaries, you're going to find lots of different opinions and about this this verse, but I think what I just said fits pretty well with what's happening here, which is focused, yes, on the father and the boy, but also on the disciples. And it's going to tie to something we're going to get to in just a little bit later today. And, and you'll see it illustrated again about where the disciples really are in this, despite everything they've seen and everything that they have done. Every piece of evidence and testimony that they've lived in with Jesus, they just, they just can't, they just can't get very far in this. So, any thoughts, any questions? Type anything in. I was wondering if we could use the word that they had become kind of complacent. Maybe they they are seeing this every day. They're seeing Jesus healing people every day and seeing the crowds and like you said the rock starness of it all that maybe maybe they just kind of really forget sometimes in whose company they are keeping and who gave them this power to to heal because yes. it's like every day that's you know it's we all know that that kind of happens complacent I mean, means complacency means getting too used to something yes. right we're just and with I, them every day we know we can do this we know we should be able to do it because we've done it before and so so the power then becomes a power divorced from the person of jesus yes it's just like a power yes. in a pouch yes power in a pouch and they think they can just go use that that power in the pouch and eat all place they want so yeah, I think you're right. Complacent is a good word. I, it hap but you know they see so many amazing things. You would just anyway. We'll see. There's more to come. So we'll hang on to that question. Anybody want to type anything in while I finish up my coffee? <laughs> my little afternoon cup. Just a little shot of caffeine. Does it work? I think it. I think it. Some days it helps. Yes, I don't. I don't drink coffee every afternoon, but a lot of a lot of work days in particular, I do. Yep. Okay, so let's go on to verse thirty. So now, oh, one other thing. Just let since we're all here now. By now, I know everybody's who's here today. Who's going to be here today is here today. No class July 10th, 17th, and 24th. So we do have class next Monday. 
the afternoon before the 4th of July. If you have big plans that day, of course, you, you won't be here. But I didn't see any reason not to have class. So it, it's going to be on July 3rd, we will have class. But then we will not meet the next three Mondays because Patty and I will be in Norway yes. on a ship visiting all, all those fjords up and down Norway because of Patty's amazing, amazing travel shopping skills. <laughs> she does. She's like, she's like a travel shopping savant or something. It takes a lot of time to, to figure it all out. But yeah, but you did it. You save quite a lot of money. You did it. So let's look at a map for a minute. So Caesarea Philippi, that's where they have been. Okay. And and then they made their way down to, oh, I can't, can I move the map? Oh, that's not going to, ah. Okay, next slide. They had been up at Caesarea Philippi. Then they made their way to the Mount of Transfiguration, which was somewhere to the south in northern Galilee. Um, let me change. Okay, somewhere in the south of northern Galilee. Forget the bottom arrow yet. Now they're going to make their way further down, okay, in, into Galilee. So they're moving southward, okay? They're moving southward. So when they left that place, this would be the Mount of the Transfiguration, which we're not sure exactly what mount it is. I explained that um, last week. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He doesn't want the crowds to come running to him. He wants time with his disciples. I sort of get this. If you just put it with what we just, just had, he knows they're not getting it. If anything, they are regressing. And he wants time alone with them. To spend, to be alone with them and to talk to them and to teach them and to disciple them and to bring them along. You know, disciple is not, a good synonym for disciple is not student. It's apprentice. He is the master. They are the apprentices. And that takes time. And that takes attention from the master. That's why there's a limited number of apprentices that any master in any trade would take on. Jesus did, want, did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. So for a second day now, a second time now, he has talked about his coming death and resurrection. Do they grasp it? Do they get it? They don't. Verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him about it. That's pretty human, isn't it? Don't you think, Patty? Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, you're just, you. I mean, people, <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to be seen as asking a dumb question. How many times in my classes has somebody prefaced a question with, well, this might be a dumb question or, you know, but no, there are no dumb questions. Every question asked in any of my classes ever in the last 20 years, that question was on the minds of at least five other people in the class at the time. So there aren't dumb questions. And they're just, they're just afraid to ask them about it. They well, don't, they don't get it. They've never heard of a man who died and came back in three days, right? Either. They don't know so about like, that. They're, 
but I, but again and again crucified messiah is right. some these are two words that you can't put together if they're coming to the conclusion deep in their hearts that jesus is messiah the last thing that they're going to find there in their hearts is him dying at the hands of the priests or the Romans or anyone because he's the Messiah. Power, might, wonder, glory, all of that stuff. And they, they, just, they just don't understand and they're afraid to ask him about it. I don't know if he could even, even find the words to help them. It's, sometimes we just have to live it, don't we? Sometimes to get to the truth, we just have to live it. It's, it's, I know as a parent, I wish so often I could have just taken my own lived experience and convinced my kids, this, this is of deep value to you. You know, learn all these lessons that I learned the hard way. But you know what happens? They learn it the hard way. It's just, just the way we are. Well, 35, sitting down now, taking rest. Sitting down. I just love those details in here. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. And he said, anyone who... Oh, wait, I went too far. 35. So they came to Capernaum. So we, I think we all know where Capernaum is. Yes. 33? Yeah, 33. So we came to Capernaum. So we, Capernaum is right up there, right? On the uh, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Right there, that's Capernaum. So now they've made their way southward from Caesarea Philippi to the Mount of the Transfiguration, whatever mount that is, and then to Capernaum. So when they, they came to Capernaum, verse 33, and when he was in the house, probably Peter's house, he asked them, well, what were you arguing about on the road? They're just walking along every day, and behind them, he can hear them arguing and bickering. Gosh, I just had images of my kids in the back seat. <laughs> what parents have not experienced that? Yeah. So what were you arguing about on the road, Jesus asked them. But they kept quiet. They don't want to admit what they were arguing about because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So they won't tell them. Right. <laughs> Pathetic. See, what is this about? It is about their their lack of understanding. Just like remember what I said, it wasn't it wasn't wrong that Jesus got frustrated with them? Well, I imagine he's kind of frustrated now. So sitting down, this is maybe a serious moment, right? He's gonna sit down. They're all going to gather around. He called the twelve and he said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Whoever wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. Well, that's one of the most famous things Jesus says. He demonstrates it in John's Gospel when he washes the feet of, of, of the disciples. That he came to serve, not to be served. And it's it's... The disciples, the disciples, as most people, resist the world being turned upside down. And they want to be first. They, you know, uh, elsewhere, what's another 
sort of parallel story. James and John arguing, but who's going to who's going to get the best seat at the table? So, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then Jesus took a little child, because there's probably a scattering of a crowd around the house and stuff at this point, whom he placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So, there are some who would say that the little children phrase, even here in verse 37, speaks to um, what they might call unbelievers. I, I think it's just, he's just saying, little children that in the kingdom of God little children are welcome whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me and the reason I say that is because it's a shocking thing for him to say now in our world this is not a shocking thing in our world right what's the phrase we hear a lot of it's all about the children that is not their world children were basically non-persons um, they were tended to be invisible in society. Um, they were seen as another mouth to feed in a society that is largely on subsistence diets. Um, and you can say, well, but that wouldn't be true within the family. And I would say, well, I wonder how much the families and the parents of this time resisted getting too close to their children because half of them didn't live past the age of five. Mm -hmm. If half of the babies that were born didn't even make it to the age of five or six, it seems to me that you might build up defenses around that, that kind of pain or grief that we would experience now and seems very, very human. This is a world, that, to our knowledge, the Jews never did this, but this is a world where um, there, certainly in Roman culture, they practiced what was called infant exposure. An unwanted child would be left under a tree, either to die or to be picked up by somebody else. Most often a girl. If it was picked up by somebody else, almost every it would i mean the 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 child would be a new slave right if she was a girl she would probably be used sexually um when she grew up it's it, it's a harsh world and it's especially harsh for children and for widows and that's why when you go through the old testament you find um place after place where God through the prophets tells the people that you must protect the widows and orphans because they were the most marginalized people in the in not just the uh, Hebrew Israelite society but in ancient cultures 
so I, I see that Lynn Lawton put up in the kingdom of God and every individual has worth. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Indeed. Sure, of course. And so Jesus is in a very soft way warning his disciples. Whoever welcomes one of these little children of my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me, who would be the Father. So, it is, he is changing their mindset, their orientation. You can always go to Galatians 3, 28, I think it is, where Paul writes, you know, that in Christ is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, and we can put the other categories in there we want, young or old, or right? that we are all one in Christ Jesus. And the categories and divisions that mark the world, the fallen world in which we live, are washed away in the kingdom. They don't exist in the kingdom. And, but when you, when you encounter stories involving children in scripture, from beginning to end, it is helpful to remember how they were seen because it is markedly different than the way we see children, love children, treat children in our culture today. Um, I would imagine that, um, you know, when you have a child who's lived past five, six, seven, eight, I, I wonder how much, like, you know, we use the word because we enjoy our children. We yes. do. We get angry with them sometimes, but gosh, you enjoy your children. Yes. And I just kind of wonder if it was just like, a waiting game until they were big enough to be of some worth in helping well, with I, the I chores. Think and the, the natural thing stuff. is to enjoy your children. Yes. But it's a very, it's just a very different world. And I can, I'm thinking about, I've seen a photograph circulating recently. A photograph. This is not a painting. This is a photograph, which means it's very recent. Okay. Of three girls, like they were like six, eight, and ten who were all mill workers oh my goodness. in America or London, you know, before the passage of child labor laws. Wow. The world has changed a lot in the last 150 years. And um, there are times not that long ago which would be much more attuned to this view of children than ours is. So anyway, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children, my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And so now we hear from John. The teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in, in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. So presumably the way it's written is it's this one extended conversation that they're having, which works for me. And John says, well, you know, we saw someone, you know, driving out demons in your, in your name, but he wasn't one of us. So we told him to stop. And Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Now, it's important to grasp that those simple words in my name are significant. Okay, they, they are more than just uttering a word. It's easy to just literally say a name. To be in my name is to do it in my 
in my authority. And there is a story in the Old Testament where Joshua comes running to Moses one day and he says, Ah, oh, Moses, there's these two guys back in the camp and they've been prophesying and all this other stuff. You know, we need to stop them. And Moses says, no, don't stop them. Don't stop them. You know, may we all be filled with that, that spirit is pretty much what Moses says. So this, this work that Jesus is doing is not restricted to Jesus and his 12. And somehow this person and maybe others like him are not to be stopped. For whoever is not against Jesus is not against us is for us. It's kind of a surprising moment, I think. It is for me. Um, but this thing is much larger than the disciples. Right? It's much larger. This is about God's rescue project for all of humanity. So the disciples have to have a larger view. Um, And they don't yet. Verse 41. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, which means I'm really giving it to you straight here. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. I mean, saying that we have... We have allies who aren't part of the immediate circle of the Twelve. Yes. Right? Yes. For me, it's, for me, this is another verse that reminds me to not be, that we Christians are not to be um, gatekeepers, guardians, keeping people out. We are simply supposed to usher people into Jesus. We'll leave all this up to Jesus. It's not up to his disciples. Um, it's kind of like when, um, in the book of Acts, when the great rabbi uh, Gamaliel is presented with the evidence against John and James and, and Peter and, and what they're doing. And Gamaliel wisely, this wise, wise rabbi of the first century, whom we know about a lot outside the New Testament, Gamaliel says, well, you know, who are we to stop them? If it's of God, do we want to be in the way of that? And if it's not of God, it'll just die off. You know, that, that's, a, that's a healthier attitude than taking it upon ourselves, as the disciples have done here, to go around stomping like we're playing whack-a-mole, everything that we think, every piece of incorrect theology that might be out there. Incorrect theology is all over the place. Some of it's egregious. Some of it is not, not so much. But you want to respond to it. Um, but it really isn't our job, you know, to decide who's in and who's out, which I get that, that flavor from this. 
So. Scott, I did want you to, I don't know if you noticed here, that Diana huh, see? put something in there about when Carl went to Bolivia on a mission trip, he found out they didn't name their children until they were past two. Because obviously, I bet it's a place where there was a lot of early childhood death. And it would be, to me, that's just such a sad but natural, understandable defense mechanism. Right? Yes. Absolutely. I, I, I think I, I get that to some degree. So now Jesus is going to get very pointed with them in his warnings to them as they seem to be taking it upon themselves to sort of run and decide who's in, who's out, who to stop, who not to stop, yada, 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 right? So he says to them, if anyone causes one of these little ones now it's a larger group. The little ones is larger than just the children. I think the children in the earlier part was who he was talking about. But he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me. Right? Because we should in some way, it's just that full, you know the full trust that a child will place in his or her mother when they're like three or four? That's the kind of trust we should have in Jesus. Just utter. Just utter and complete. They couldn't articulate it. They don't understand, but yeah, they trust their mom. So if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, which means what? Stumble. Stumble over a brick in the path. Lose their way. And what's the way? God's way. This path um, of Jesus and discipleship. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. A millstone's a stone that is used to grind wheat. Between You have two of them, and you, people or donkeys or cat, oxen turn them and they grind, they, they grind the wheat down. Better off to have a millstone put around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause people to stumble, to get in the way of people coming to know Jesus. Now for me, that is lived out not in words, I think, as much as in how we Christians live. If by our lives, if by our behavior, we cause people to turn away, what a terrible thing that is. Of course, what flashes in my mind, the image is of the guy who's driving down the street and he's got the honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker while he's flipping some fella off at the intersection. And people are going, oh my gosh, yeah, that's that Jesus stuff. You know, we can't be that. We can't be that. We have to do better. So Jesus goes on, because these are pointed warnings. I'm just telling you, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into Gehana. That's what hell is, Gehana. Gehana was this horrible place of where human sacrifices were offered to pagan gods on the south side of Jerusalem and became the 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 rubbish heap for Jerusalem. And some say that it continuously burned. Might be true. I mean, it's just a big rubbish heap. Um, so, 
than to have. But that that's and if you looked at this in the Greek, right there in the Greek at that moment in that sentence, when it says "go into," the word actually it it is in Hades, which would be the Greek world for the pla the Greek word for the place of the dead. It is Gehana. This 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 almost this blasphemous rubbish heap on the south side of Jerusalem. It is better to be maimed than with two hands to go into Gehenna where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna. So, whoa. So a lot of work was done on this passage. And there's a pretty strong consensus now that this passage is really it, it, it's simpler than it first strikes you. And there's order to it. Okay? And that order is given by the fact that we have I'll make sure you help me, Patty, if I get this in order. We first have hands, feet, and then eyes. Mm -hmm. So, hands, feet, and eyes. Feet carry us to sin, transport us anywhere. Oops, sorry about that. This is a reminder. To sin. It's tagamet time, Patty. Feet carry us to sin. Hands enable us to do it. And the eyes, a sort of window into the soul, enable us to think about it. So, so, so the feet that carry us into sin, the hands that commit the sin, the eye that reflects and thinks about the sin is what this passage is about. And that's pretty much, I think, those scholars who have put good time into this paragraph, that's where they've that's where they've they've kind of ended up. Because it this is about the inward progression of sin. It is about this inward progression where where you are giving more and more of yourself over to sin. And it's in the context of Is, is there something more dreadful than causing some way, someone to turn away from Christ? Is there something more dreadful than that? Um, if causing someone to stumble, and that word stumble is a significant Jewish word that's used elsewhere. Is there something more, more dreadful than 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 causing someone to turn away from Christ, to stumble um, and lose their way. It's, Jesus says, no, there's not. I mean, you could say, well, I mean, you know, like if, if you cause somebody's death or something, I imagine Jesus will come back and ask you, okay, which is worse, to die or to lose Christ? To lose Christ. Sure. Death doesn't hold us. It's the enemy. 
We're grief-stricken at death. It takes us all. But you, you always, with, with Jesus, with the Bible, with God, you, you've got to keep your eye on the larger picture of what is going on with God, for the people, and even for us as persons. Got this larger picture. I have this life, yes. It might be hard, it might be short, but it is not all that God is giving me. There is a life after death, and there is going to be a life after life after death, a life of resurrection. That's, that's what God promises. So if you start lopping things off of that, it's going to make you, it's going to give you bad judgment about how to understand what, what we're asked to be, to cause someone to stumble. Oh. It's like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. When Jesus tells a story about the the um, there's a landowner and he's got workers and they plant the field right and the workers then come back in and say well okay we got all these weeds growing up we're gonna go out and pull them all and what does the landowner say don't don't we're gonna save that till the end it's gonna be the landowner who's gonna do all of that why because the workers won't get it right dot 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 you Christians, you are not in a good place to make perfect judgments about other people's faith. So just don't do it. Just don't do it. Be ready to be to be ready to witness in what you do and say. But you are not a perfect judge of anything in this world. So, wow, that's a you know. So all right. So let's read. Let's we have the hand in verse forty-three the feet in verse 45, the eye in verse 47, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire, tested. Um, salt brings out what? Um, salt is necessary to life. Salt brings out, salt is a way of speaking of, of, of taste, of its, its um, useful, right? Yes. Um, and of course fire is the ultimate symbol of being sort of tested and, and, and cleansing. You use fire to burn off impurities and so forth. So, this business of stumbling, whether it is we cause someone else to stumble or we stumble ourselves, Jesus takes this very seriously. And I think we're, you know, it's, it's, we have to, we have to know how to do that, how to take it seriously in a life filled with the joy that God gives us, Right? Maybe that's the challenge for some. You know, they, they um, gosh, people are inclined to make rules and requirements and all this stuff. So quickly we run to them. And it's not what, it's not what Jesus is about. It is about trusting Jesus and, and 
anything we do ourselves or do to others that causes us or them to, to, to lose our trust in Jesus, to begin to give it up, that is, could be called this inward progression of sin. Verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves, he tells the disciples, and be at peace with, peace with each other. Remember, they were arguing, walking, walking down the road. Have salt among yourselves. Be, hmm, there was a, a, a gal a long time ago wrote a book that sold a lot of copies about being salt, and, and it was about, it was about evangelism is what she was writing about. I, I think this salt is about, um, it is about having what? Having, having, being Salt makes something taste better. We are to be passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. Passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. Passionate, firmly, firmly committed to trusting in Jesus, firmly committed to helping others come to know Christ because there's nothing, nothing, nothing more important. It's not how the world sees it. For the world now, it's just one more. I'm glad you have that. That's so nice. You know, yes. I'm really glad that you know Jesus. That's sweet. But no, this is a truth proclaimed to the world. And we have been given the responsibility to do that. Um, in words, sure. But I, the most powerful witnesses, never words, the most powerful witnesses in lives, how, how we live. So anyway, wow, oh, are, that is some kind of stuff right there, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is indeed. So when we come back next Monday, we get to talk about um, Jesus, Moses, the Pharisees, and divorce. Wow. Oh, yeah. So I'm not start. I am not starting that right now. I don't care if it was three fifty two. We are not starting that today. <laughs> We're gonna wait till we have, you know, time to get going on it. Yeah, exactly. So does anybody have any closing questions? Anything you wanna? I saw Susan Faulkner wrote something. Salt enhances flavor. Yeah, right. We yeah sure. Disciples of Christ, we should be flavorful. Somebody should be able to come into St. Andrew and see joy. Yes. Right? They should just be able to see a joyful place, which I think St. Andrew is. I do, too. I really do. It's, people have asked me, well, how's it going, you know, these days? And for a the first few months after people found out that we were going to leave the United Methodist Church, we were got we got a lot of older people coming from other Methodist churches scenario. But in the past couple months, it's a lot of young families and stuff, and who many of whom seem to be not even churched, not now. They might have been when they were younger, but and I really am firmly convinced that one reason the church has been getting busier and busier and more people coming is because when people visit, 
we get a pretty high percentage of them who want to stay. Yes. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like that's that ethos of Jesus and Robert Hasley. And, and now Arthur, too, to be honest with you, that, that you feel at, at St. Andrew and you see it in people like Jordan Wansmouth, Rachel Cordham, Rachel. Miss, Miss Rachel. I mean, who wouldn't want your kids to, be a to ha- get to hang out with Miss Rachel? Right. Really? Because right. she just exudes the love of Christ. Yes. yes. She really does. So anyway, very good. Yes. And when we uh, come together next week, and next week we do meet, we'll be talking about, well, at least for a bit, we'll be talking about divorce. And then we'll have three weeks when we won't be able to meet. No. Because you and I will be gone. That's right. And we will be gone in Norway and having a nice time. But I will miss class. We oh we definitely will. That day we're we're actually flying on that uh, two weeks from today. Yeah, Patty asked me if I could. Because we're leaving a little later that day, if I could have class and fly shortly thereafter, I said, nah, I'm too old for that. It I really, it that. would have been really pushing it. <laughs> I can't, no, it's all I can do to get out of this house. It's just a few hours on after any trip. this class would be over. Yeah, a four-day a fa- a four trip is, <laughs> is hard enough, much less two weeks, two and a half weeks, so I, I couldn't do that. The blessing is we've done this cruise thing a whole bunch of times. Yeah, and it is. We've now learned that you don't nearly need to bring as much stuff as you thought that That's you it. did. Edit, you know, edit, the, edit. That's true. It's true. <laughs> so we're so glad you all were with us today. Thank you for being here tomorrow um, again. It's the last Tuesday class for a while. Because the first 4th of July, see, is coming yeah. up next week. So they're going to miss four weeks. I know. That's really a lot. But we're going to finish up 1 Samuel tomorrow, and then when we come back on Tuesday, we will begin 2 Samuel. And that'll be a good thing. A yeah, good break. Even though it's really all one long It kind of worked out that it'll way. It'll still be it's a, kinda a good out. break. It's a good, it's a good yes. place for a break, actually. Yes. So I hope you all have a great rest of the afternoon, and we'll see some of you tomorrow in class or online for the Tuesday class uh-huh. as we keep going forward and in 2 Samuel. See others of you on, on Sunday. I'm preaching yes. on Sunday. Oh, yeah, he's preaching I'm bringing on it. Sunday. I'm not sure what I'm bringing yet. I need to see how the service is set up, being July 2nd. I don't really yes, know yes. how much time I have or what the music's going to be or anything. And for those of you who, you know, you probably have seen this around the church, but just saying, at 2 o'clock on Sunday, it's going to be like, a fabulous Fourth of July concert. Stars and Stripes extravaganza. So Patty and I are going to go to lunch after we'll go service, to lunch and, get back. and then we'll go back yes. to the church. I mean, what, yeah, what a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon. It'll all be exactly. good. Exactly. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you, God. I'm going to thank you, God, for air conditioning. We are so <laughs> grateful that we can be inside in the coolness of our homes and. Um, be able to study your word and uh, it's it's all wonderful God we thank you so so very much I pray God that you would hold this group together again another week God and uh, help us to keep our eyes focused on you Lord for us not to be complacent for us not to uh, not to let too many hours go before we think about you again Lord by maybe praying before meals saying our prayers together at night just thanking you, God, when we get up. All the all the little ways that we can keep our eyes focused on you, God, throughout the day. Please watch over all of us, God. We pray that you would keep us healthy and safe. And Lord, we do pray for your wisdom and your discernment, God, 
Help us to make good decisions every day of our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios, everybody. Bye, friends. Stay safe out there, kids. Yes. Bring water with you always <laughs> in the car. Seriously. That we don't leave the house without a bottle of water. Thanks, Mom. I can't help it. <laughs> don't. You never know what might happen. Love you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.